Weekend Bulwark Podcast. I am Charlie Sykes. So it does look like summer 2022 is ending with kind of a bang. So that's why we're going to wrap up this week with a conversation with my colleague, Tim Miller, a New York Times bestselling author, Tim Miller. <laughs> so good to be here. August, you know, I was supposed to be quiet, sleepy August, a myth. Yeah. But this is sort of it. I mean, this is we're we're coming up to Labor Day. That's the yeah. that's the kind of quasi unofficial end of summer. Um, I don't know whether this is like the old times when people would say, "Well, that's that's when the campaign season begins." But of course, the campaign season never begins because it never ends. It's like one of those <laughs> those infinity loops now, right? It's uh, pushing that boulder up the hill every day. That's true. Uh, and, and, and here in Oakland, you know, summer is really in October, so uh, which is really nice. You know, it's our hottest month of the year. So it's kind of, you know, I think the rules are out the window in 2022. Yeah. In, in Wisconsin, summer is uh, three weeks in July. So right. <laughs> it's already over. You've, you've already put up your pumpkins. Yeah. It, so it's, it's not like we don't have a lot to talk about today. There's abortion, there's student loans, there's Reports and threats of coups, uh, investigations. Uh, today is happy redacted uh, Mar-a-Lago affidavit search warrant uh, Friday. You hey. and I do not know what that's going to be, um, so we shouldn't speculate about it. But, you know, I just hope that people don't have irrational expectations about something that's probably going to be a lot of, like, black crossouts. <laughs> I don't know. Just, I'm just hoping that, you know, on one of the pages they just accidentally use the see-through Sharpie. You know, like maybe we can kind of get a get a picture. I do just want my bad. My bad. Oops. Yeah, yeah. We don't know uh, what will be in there. I don't want to get over my skis, but I do want to say one thing that that was interesting this week that that shouldn't get lost, which was that uh, the Trump legal team, to the extent that it exists, uh, might just be the game show host himself. Filed a motion requested that the archivist demonstrate what the justification was for the various documents. Uh, you know, I think assuming that it was going to embarrass, I guess, the Biden administration or, or it's unclear what they were assuming. It's not, they're not, it's not exactly the best legal minds over there. And what it revealed earlier this week was that Joe Biden and the executive branch had no completely recused themselves from determining you know which of these you know documents were uh, were appropriately classified. They, he did not have his hands in there. As a lot, there were a lot of wild accusations about this supposedly politicized investigation. That was number one, and number two, it like went into greater detail than we had about like how sensitive the documents were. I knew it was just an utter cell phone by Trump and his like OAN pinup lawyers. And so uh, you know, at this point, with the information we've got, DOJ archivist. White House has been has been doing the right thing. We'll see what more we learn. It, it is a bit awkward. So r- rather than start with the most important stories of the day, shall we talk about the most trivial story of the day? <laughs> There's Let's a lot of competition it. for that. Please. You tweeted out a clip from yeah. Jared, who, what what is he? He's, he, he did a, a Megyn Kelly show apparently in front of a locker or something. It's, it's not clear. You wrote, a, a sociopathic slender man summarizes his self-help book for Megan Kelly, and he goes through the deep thoughts, the life lessons. Here is lesson number three from Jared Fail, son-in-law. Let's play it. And number three was don't apologize. I think that, you know, we're kind of in a post-apology world where people take up an apology as an admonition of guilt, and then they just, you know, cancel or hit you even harder for it. But 
Okay, can we just play that one more time? Because I, 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 I want to. <laughs> there's, there's a lot to unpack there. I, I know. Just, just play it one more time because I, I have some trivial points and some deep thoughts about Jared Kushner's deep thoughts. Play it again. And number three is don't apologize. I think that, you know, we're kind of in a post-apology world where people take up an apology as an admonition of guilt and then they just, you know, cancel or hit you even harder for it. But so is it petty for me to just flag the fact that <laughs> he misuses the word admonition? He, he wants to say admission, but he says admonition because I don't know, that sounds smarter. <laughs> what? I don't know what. Are, just, are you are you admissioning him for misusing his language in that, in that so, podcast? <laughs> so it is true that we're in a post-apology world, but he's stating it as this is a good thing, right? This is one of my lessons in life. Never apologize. As, as yeah. self-help books for hundreds of years have, have have said, as religious leaders for centuries have said, never apologize, never uh, confess to sins. As fathers have told their sons for decades, son, never apologize, never admit error, never what? Okay. Yeah, two layers. Uh, I'm glad that you went the biblical route because I have two more kind of practical concerns with the advice. Number one is... Um, I cut that part off because it was just like the most embarrassing and shameful all in one. Uh, but the broader context of this clip, these lessons is he was sharing with Megyn Kelly, the lessons that he learned from his father-in-law, Donald Trump. The first one was, I believe that controversy elevates message. I think the second one was something about never back down, something like that. And the third one was never apologize. The interesting contextual point about all of this is that like, his father-in-law lost by 7 million votes and the more people turned out to vote against him than any president in American history. And so, I don't know, maybe there should be some reflection about whether the lessons that he learned from his father-in-law were actually even, even if they were moral and ethical, which they plainly are not, as you, as you uh, laid out. Maybe they also aren't great lessons for winning. I don't, you know, I, maybe had his father-in-law been a little bit more apologetic, shown a little more humility, been less prone to trying to elevate message through compromise, maybe he would have won re-election running. He did. He yeah. won bigly. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. He won Less, bigly. Lesson number eight, never admit defeat. Never concede, ever. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if, lesson number nine, if you are served a big pile of shit, say that it's gold and enough people will believe you. And you just say it over and over and over again. And, you know, that and it worked for him. Otherwise, in the pocket, this is why I did this. I had too much coffee before the 11th hour with Stephanie Rule oh, last night. Yeah. And so I was up late and I, I decided to punish myself and hope it would help me fall asleep listening to the sociopathic slender man with Megan Kelly. And uh, he wouldn't admit uh, to Megan's credit. I'll give her one one merit and one demerit to her on, on the merit side of the ledger. She did try to get him four times. She asked him to say whether it was a legitimate defeat and, and he wouldn't do it. Well, so there you go. I guess, I guess never apologize, never admit defeat. But on the demerit side, I did find it interesting that after, you know, this little privilege fucking man child who has had everything handed to him by his criminal there father. There goes the explicit rating. There it goes. Criminal father-in-law. <laughs> like, oh, oh, really? You never had to apologize. I wonder why. Um, uh, anyway, uh, I, I noticed that Megyn Kelly didn't follow up with what I thought would have thought was the natural follow-up, which was, I don't know, I would have liked an apology. 
when your father-in-law told me that I was menstruating on live TV uh, just because I was doing my job, that would have been nice. I, you know, an apology she, would have been appropriate, she, I think. She, she got over but No, that. I guess she didn't do that. That wouldn't be tough. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, I wouldn't recommend going on Jared Kushner's uh, podcast tour as he promotes his book, I Am Slender Man. But I will say this, one final plug is uh, he has passed me in the Amazon rankings. So if listening to this segment this weekend, if you are one of the few Fortunately, who have not, not purchased New York Times bestseller, <laughs> why we did it, because <laughs> I'm not at all better about being beaten by this freaking lightweight sociopath. But, you know, if you want to help me push me back up the rankings, right back ahead of them, buy a gift. It's Labor Day weekend, beach read, looking for something very not uplifting to read over your Labor Day. Why we did it? Amazon.com. You know, I still have the competitive is yeah. flowing. I can tell. So I had a couple more thoughts about this. I'm looking at his face. I'm looking at the sociopathic <laughs> slender man summarizing, you know, his deep thoughts. And I'm thinking, who Botox. would look at him? and go, hey, I would like to invest several billion dollars in this guy who's just basically admitted, whatever you do, don't ever apologize. Do not ever allow yourself to, to be held accountable for your fuck-ups. Yes, I want to, <clears throat> uh, you know, Tim Bin Miller, I would, I would like to give him $2 billion to invest um, because I trust this man so much. Okay, that's number one. Number two. Unless you want to weigh in on that. The, well, this, the, you mentioned his face. I just, are we getting to the Botox or are, are you just, just moving I'm, past I'm, I'm, I'm not going. I do think it's odd. I mean, I, nothing against Botox. I think everyone should do what they, should, they, they think is right to make themselves look as appealing and feel good and self-improvement. I'm, I'm for all of that. I don't know. You know, a 40-year-old that has like a weird kind of Slytherin face. I just, I don't know that Slytherin. Like the, lip, the lip injections are really, were really... That's good, though. You, you just slipped that in the Slytherin face <laughs> for people who, who thought that you could listen to the Bulwark podcast and not have a Harry Potter reference in the first 10 minutes. All right. The other point, though, is that understand that to the extent and, and, and please bear with me here to the extent that there is a Trumpian philosophy, this this uh, this absolute belief that you never apologize, you never admit error, you never ask for forgiveness is pretty fundamental. I mean, that is one of the absolutely base beliefs of this guy. And, and go back, you remember, I'm sure you do. I'm sure you remember, sort of I was burned there. into your memory, the Iowa Family Leadership Summit mm. in, in, in 2015, I think, or 2016. He was asked whether he'd ever asked God for forgiveness. And, and Trump, I have this in front of me. And Trump answered, I'm not sure I have. I just go out and try to do a better, a better job from there. I don't think so. I think if I've done something wrong, I think I just try to make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. <laughs> now, see, I was so naive back then. I'm thinking that saying this in front of a group of Christians in the old sense of the word, they would go, okay, this guy clearly is not one of us. I mean, there's a certain disconnect there, Tim. I mean, I'm not a theologian, but I'm thinking that a guy that says, yeah, I sin, forgiveness, don't really even think about God there. You know, it's really not relevant. No, I've never asked for forgiveness. And yet you think about the impact he's had on the general culture, and more specifically, among people who consider themselves Christian, and they listened to that, and they went, hmm, this is our guy. Yeah. <laughs> One final thought, it just yeah. as a Catholic, as a cradle Catholic, it is just 
a mystery of all time that the Catholic integralists, you know, the people who are basically looking for a Catholic junta in this country, you know, the most devout, so to speak, or, you know, claiming to be devout Catholics, your Sohavamari uh, types, convert, have chosen this person. I mean, for, <laughs> I know of all the, I, I think I can speak with the most expertise about Catholic doctrine. And, uh, you know, confession and asking for forgiveness is, is like literally about the most fundamental element of your responsibility as a Catholic. And to think that they would have turned to this guy Despite the fact that we've analyzed it and overanalyzed it and written books about it, yeah, yeah. it just still remains hard, right. you know, to make that connection in your head about how these guys do it. Yeah, it, it's worse than that, though. Is not only have they accepted him, and, and you could argue, well, they and did. They it wanted to lead the junta. Yeah, yeah, that, you know that they wanted power, and they were making the Faustian bargain. I mean, okay, so that's bad. What's worse is the way in which so many Americans have internalized the same anti-value which yeah. is you never apologize, you never confess, you never allow yourself to be held accountable, you never ask for forgiveness. And the way that that has turned um, the, the political culture on its head, including the culture of people who, you know, f- you know, again, five minutes ago, I mean, by which I mean 10 years ago, you know, would have said these are fundamental values. This is the way you raise your children. This is the way you were raised. This is, you know, this is why we talk about sportsmanship. This is what a man is about. And so you have the coarsening of the political culture and of the Christian political culture that emulates the worst elements of this guy they've embraced. So, you know, the fact that they supported Trump is, is awful. We've talked about that. But the way in which they have become you know, and that they will go out and they will buy books telling them never apologize, never, never ask for forgiveness. And they go, yes, yes, this is right. Because, you know, the, because the other side is just so awful. I mean, that's, could I also mention one other thing though? Oh, in, please. in Jared's defense. Oh no, never mind. I had the, the pregnant pause there because people, what? No, no. The thing is that apologies are difficult. I mean, let's talk about this. I mean, you and I both know this. Apologies are difficult because there oh, is God. another culture out there which basically says we will never accept your apology. That that if you do apologize, they will, as he sort of suggests, will double down on you. We kind of know this, right? There are people who for whom there is no forgiveness ever. There is no coming back. And so you can kind of understand that at a certain point, when you have apologized, when you have asked for forgiveness, and people use that as a cudgel to beat you over your head, you understand how you create, you know, homunculuses like this, who will go, okay, so because that didn't work out well, because there are assholes out there that will never accept my apology, then let's not apologize anymore. And I'm sure that's called building character. Yes, exactly. Oh, Thank why, you. That's Thank why you. we used to teach people. That's why this is a virtue, right? It's not a virtue it's because hard. you just get to apologize and it's easy and people just let you off the hook and after after exactly. everyone lets you off the hook. I don't that isn't those weren't the lessons that, you know, are in the Bible or Canterbury exactly. Tales or any of our uh, founding documents. So Because it's hard and that's hard. what it is. It's easy. You don't wave a wand and get absolution. You have to do something about it. But that's right. That's why that's called build his building character. And basically this entire movement that was all about character counts, character counts is like, fuck character. That's for cucks. You know, 
Anyway, here we are, seventeen minutes in. If you want to just get riled up at night, if you had yeah. one, if you had your coffee a little too late in the afternoon, like I did, uh, I just I just recommend uh, Megan Kelly's new podcast, Vice Signaling, with Megan with Megan Kelly oh, okay, and Jared Kushner. It's done as good. A lot of content. Okay, now we have to get serious here. The politics of abortion. A lot of data points. Lots of polls out here. Two stories I want to do to bounce off you. In Arizona, Blake Masters has apparently decided to scrub his website. He's backtracking. He had all kinds of things about, you know, detailed support for a federal constitutional amendment that would ban all abortions everywhere. I'm 100% pro-life, all of that. And now that language is completely gone. I just have the sense that there are going to be a lot of stories like this that, because in the primaries, it was it was easy. Well, it, well, you had to move as far right as possible. And also for the last 50 years, Republican politicians have been able to take the most outlandish positions, knowing that it was theoretical. It was never yeah. real. And now they're they're kind of scrambling and he's down by double digits in Michigan. You know, the candidate Republican candidate for governor last week explains that rape victims should have to have the babies because they would find healing through giving birth to their rapist baby. This week, Republican Tudor Dixon is uh, now trailing Democratic incumbent Gretchen Whitmer by double digits. So this is not working out well for them at the moment. Yeah, I'm about to break one of Jared Kushner's 12 rules for sociopathic living right now by saying that I, I got this a little wrong, I think, when Dobbs was overturned. I, I expected the increased engagement from Democrats, obviously, and I thought that it would help them you know, close that enthusiasm gap. One thing I think I just didn't quite expect, and 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 partially this is you know Democrats deserve some credit here about having some relative um, uh, restraint uh, in their messaging and the response to this and how they've responded. And part of this is they don't get, really didn't do anything. They just got this huge gift from all of these horrible Republican candidates who have no uh, no chill and no restraint in their extremism. Uh, but what I kind of expected, right, was that your median voter was going to look at this after Roe and just think, Ugh, you know, the Democrats are running to their far extreme and want to, you know, codify all these rules that I think are a little bit, you know, over the top um, about late term abortions, et cetera. You know, Republicans are running to their extreme and like, you know, here I am stuck in the middle again. And, and that has not happened. And I, I think that right now a median voter looking at the abortion uh, environment says the Democrats are, are basically advocating for status quo. There are some examples in certain blue states where they're they're trying to expand abortion access. But but basically, it, you know, if you live in Pennsylvania, right? If you live in Wisconsin, the median state, you're like, well, Evers is pushing essentially for keeping the rules as they are in the state, and the Republicans, meanwhile, are pushing for just absolutely batshit as extreme as humanly imaginable laws and like we're seeing them be put in place in other states so like i'm seeing this change happen you know in a place like missouri where it's like you have a one week abortion ban no exceptions you see the video from south carolina of the republican state rep uh, saying basically when we pass this heartbeat bill i did not mean for it to be uh, where a 19-year-old woman could go into a hospital and have a non-viable baby that happens to have a heartbeat and not be able to get a surgical procedure. You know, that was a Republican 
legislator in, in South Carolina who is who is saying this. So so now if you're a voter looking at this, you're like, wow, the Republicans are for radical change here in a way that I don't support. You know, they're pushing these issues that are in the 10 percent and yeah, Democrats yeah, are. Sta- yeah, yeah. Go ahead. this was going to be determined by who was able to uh, frame the issue in such a way that the other side was extremist and the Republicans basically said, hold my beer. Uh, we got this. Um, right. And they and r- rather than debate this issue or try to change hearts and minds, uh, they went to ramming speed to push through these uh, these criminal laws that uh, were way beyond where the mainstream, even the mainstream of the pro-life movement had been. We're talking about the exceptions for you know rape and incest, uh, questions about the the life of the mother. And look, this is complicated for me, and I think it's complicated for you. You and I have both uh, said very, very clearly that we have been pro-life for a very, very long time. And yet watching the new extremism of the pro-life movement, I think is distressing. I mean, part of my disappointment with them or alarm has been, I think that there had been some significant progress in changing people's hearts and minds outside of the criminal code about all of this. I think that there was a cultural shift, you know, that was, you know, taking place, you know, after people, you know, would have the, you know, ultrasound images and pictures and things like that. But the pro-life movement now, as it's, you know, going from victory to victory and strength from strength in these led in these legislatures, is no longer in the business of persuading people They're in the business of grabbing for the most absolutist kind of legal solution possible. I mean, and punishing and punishing and punishing. And yes, making it very, very punitive. A lot of it's very, very performative. I mean, if you look at the polls, you can see where people are. There is a sweet spot of allowing abortion up to a certain date, you know, limits after that. Clearly, there's almost no constituency for the kind of thing that you're seeing in some of these trigger laws, rape and incest. And yet, you have the Republican nominee for governor in a swing state like Michigan sitting down and explaining why a girl who has been raped should have to have a baby. This is like the talking point from hell. Five minutes ago, the more reasonable voices in the pro-life movement would have said, you definitely don't want to go there. That is that is exactly not the kind of debate you want. And she just went there. And I think she's going to get hammered for it, hammered at the polls. Yeah. And I, I think that if defining terms here is really important because this is all changing in flux and, you know, Very what much. conservative means, what, pro, what all these things mean have, have you know, have been evolving. Um, you know, I think there'd been a lot of stasis in our political terminology for a long time that that's, that's developing now. And I think that, you know, put the pro-life movement, you know, people kind of aside, I, I think your average pro-life voter, right? Um, I, I think that if somebody said, my view is that, you know, abortion should be legal in the first trimester, you know, maybe up to 20, you know, you can pick a weak number, um, you know, bef- before the v- child's viable, whatever it is, there should be exceptions for rape and says life, health of the mother. Um, you know, we should be decent to the mothers and try to give them support. Yes. Right. right. Like they would yeah. say I'm pro-life. Like I think somebody who has those views would define themselves and say I'm pro-life. Okay, so I, I think now what is happening, this is you see this in Kansas, is a person is a person that held that view who says I'm pro-life is looking at what what is being proposed and are like, I'm horrified by what the exactly pro-life right. person is, is is proposing. Right. Okay. And this is just creating 
you know, I think massive problems for Republicans. And that goes to the Blake Masters ad, which is you can just see that his polling is showing this and, and that he is. So this Blake Masters ad, if, if you want to watch it, you can Google it. Uh, he is also he, he and Kushner are very similar. I don't I don't know if they're mm-hmm. going to the same facial reconstruction doctor or if there's yeah. something that's happening in the lab there. I don't know what's going on. But, but he, micro but, needling. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very creepy. Yeah, scrubs, but but yeah. this, <laughs> this ad, oh, acid this ad it's just a serious, yeah. serious topic, Charlie. This, yeah. this ad I just is basically him saying, okay, I'm trying to reframe this right now because everything that we've been talking about the last five minutes is right. Right. Like, you know, he had had the personhood amendment, on his website, which is basically, you know, a, a complete ban on abortion, any fertilized egg, you know, as a human, and it should be criminalized. So that was his position during the primary. In this ad, he tries to reframe this by saying, oh, wait, no, Mark Kelly is the extremist. He's the one that wants abortion on demand. You know, what I really just want is kind of a ban on partial birth abortion and late-term abortion, right? And and this new Ooh, view of Blake yeah. Masters, Ooh. radically changed view, yeah. is like that was – this is what I'm saying. That view that he's landed on was like the view that a lot of people who were nominally pro-life had, right? Like um, – and, and, so, and so now he's like quickly like – trying to swim and you know doggy paddle back to this position but the problem is he's now going to be on a ballot with Carrie Lake on the governor's ballot and with other people like Tudor Dixon throughout the country who who are sticking with the personhood thing it's going to make it impossible for him to credibly you know make this pivot no i i think i, th- I think i think you're right on all of this uh and uh he- the, the latest poll out of Michigan shows the way this is shifting. And, you know, you you, you said you, you know, had underestimated this. I, I all along thought that the uh, initial polls, it was going to take a while for public opinion to catch up with the new environment, because basically you had a 50 year reality that had been changed. And so everything that we had thought we understood about the politics of abortion suddenly was was gone. And so, for example, you know, a lot of focus on whether this energizes Democratic voters. I think it, this is also having a tremendous effect on Republican women voters, many of whom, you know, had been pro-choice but voted for anti-abortion politicians because they weren't firing real bullets, right? I mean, yeah. so it was no big deal. I was talking to somebody yesterday who has voted up and down the list for anti-abortion Republicans despite her beliefs in abortion rights and and very strong beliefs in abortion rights, because nothing would ever happen. Well, now that's completely changed. It's changed the formula. And I think that you're starting to see this. This latest poll, I don't know whether you've seen this out out of uh, Michigan, the one that shows uh, Gretchen Whitmer up by 22 points. This is the epic MRA poll in Michigan. They were asked, would you support a state constitutional amendment protecting abortion rights? 67% said yes, 24% oppose. That, yeah, that's a hell of a shift because that I'm guessing that if you would have asked, you know, questions about this a year ago, you wouldn't have had that kind of, you know, overwhelming margin. So things are just one other thing on this two yeah. Dixon thing in Michigan. I talk about this a little bit more at length. I, I'm the guest on Sarah Longwell's focus group podcast this week. So if people want a double dose of Tim this weekend, you can go over and check that out. But the short version of this is Dick Tudor is really running in kind of the Mike Pence wing of the party, right, uh, which is a little different than some of these other candidates. And that had demonstrated to be a failure in a lot of these purple places, purple, especially purple-leaning blue places like Michigan, because of these 
social issues, right? Like Trump, uh, to the the woman that you were talking about, I don't know if she was a Trump voter, but but there are a lot of voters out there who are secular, you know, pro-choice or, or whatever, modestly pro-life, but, you know, we're not zealots um, about it, that, that, that Trump appealed to them more than like Cruz or Pence, right? Because they looked at Cruz and Pence as these kind of weird, creepy, like, like very, you know, domineering, you know, patriarchal kind of Christian conservatives, and that wasn't them, right? Uh, and Trump, you know, would, managed to successfully create a coalition where the evangelicals, you know, completely sold out all of their, uh, uh, you know, biblical values, as we discussed at the top, uh, to go along with him. But then he got to bring in these secular voters in places like Michigan, where, you know, to the stereotypical working class white guy in the diner um, that the New York Times went to visit. These people, you know, because they don't, they didn't think, look, Donald Trump's not going to ban abortion. He probably paid for right, abortion. Exactly. Like, Donald Trump's not going to ban gay marriage. Like, uh, you know, he likes musicals uh, and he's from New York City. Like, and so these people justified it because they agreed with him on some of the other cultural stuff, right? Like anti woke or whatever. And so now they look at someone like Tudor Dixon. I think. And she's going to have trouble keeping the Trump coalition together. Some of these new secular voters that came in were like, I do not want a, you know, far right Christian conservative banning abortion in the state. And and so I, I think that in a lot of ways, it kind of revealed a crack in the coalition that 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 maybe some of the on the Republican side didn't realize were there. Well, there's another crack as well uh, in, in, in this coalition that you're saying. Now, you mentioned the issue of gay marriage. You probably followed uh, what uh, my home state senior Senator Ron Johnson uh, has been saying about uh, whether he would vote for federal legislation codifying gay marriage. Um, initially, uh, he you know indicated that he would vote for it. He didn't see any reason why not, because, of course, gay marriage was here to stay. It was, uh, was you know, he had no problem. So he it looked like Ron Johnson was going to surprise the world, shock the world, by actually voting in favor of this bipartisan legislation. Well, no, because he got beaten up by the Wisconsin Family Alliance or whatever and is now saying that it's completely unnecessary. I can guarantee you he's going to be a no vote. I always thought he was going to be a no vote. But this, again, reminds us that there is a a short leash for some of these politicians with their base. So Blake Masters may be scrubbing his website that said he was 100% pro-life, right? But there are going to be the crazies in Arizona who are going to go, wait, are you getting squishy on us? They're going to make it very hard for any of these guys to pivot to the center on these culture war issues. I mean, and this was see, a lesson. You know, this was a, the, the yeah. lesson that sociopathic Slenderman should have taken from his father-in-law. Is that Trump was able to kind of swish and swash between these sort of groups uh, with with a little with more skill than all these imitators are because like of his word salad. Right. And people like projected stuff onto him because he was a celebrity and like, you know, he gave these like weird answers, like his weird type diction. And 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 so he didn't just get he didn't get pinned down uh, in the same way that that a less skilled Blake Masters uh, type politician is going to. And and I think he's going to find himself in a really tough spot, especially unless unless he can convince Carrie Lake to move with him. You know, he's running on the ballot with somebody who's who's running on a complete ban, no exceptions. Uh, yeah, it's hard to be like, well, I'm 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 pivoting to the middle. Yeah, that's a great eight percent issue there. Okay, so let's switch gears to talk about the uh, military. I posted in my newsletter today a partial transcript of my conversation with uh, Elliot Ackerman, who is a decorated Marine combat veteran who's written a book about Afghanistan and. 
we got to talking about uh, the military culture and the politicization of the military, um, whether or not the military would ever actually ever get involved in elections. And let me just read you a little bit of what he said. He said, I'm really not trying to be an alarmist, but we have such high levels of dysfunction domestically. And every time we uh, kind of set up these scenarios where we're asking our military to play a role in domestic politics, we are really tempting the fates. The analogy I use is that these really bitterly contested elections remind me of a drunk driver. Drunk driver will go to the bar, right? And they will get completely hammered and they'll drive home. And probably the first time they do that, they make it home. And um, then they do it again and they make it home the second time and the third time. And then the fourth or fifth time, they get hammered drunk and try to drive home that's when they wrap their car around a telephone pole. When I look at our contested elections, it's like we're doing the equivalent as a nation of going to the bar, getting just hammered drunk, and we try to drive home. We've done it twice now, and we've sort of managed to make it home. But one of these days, if we keep doing this, we are going to wrap our proverbial car around a telephone pole. <laughs> and he's talking about Okay, so the line held on the military, getting them involved in all of this, but, and this culture is pretty strong, but the culture can break. And one of the things that in the back of my mind, I keep thinking, we think of the military as being this, you know, really meritocratic organization and, you know, <laughs> how hard it is to get to the top. And yet we have all these batshit crazy generals who come out. I mean, the Michael Flynn's and, and others. And it's like, how did they get to positions of power? How many other of these complete deranged nut jobs are, you know, strutting around in, in uniforms with the bars on them? And so talk to me about one of these guys, General Boldick who is running for Senate in New Hampshire. I mean, he's the kind of guy that's sort of in my back of my mind about, you know, what's really going on there and how worried should we be? So tell me about General Boldick. The general is the how they refer to him. I've been doing a lot of audio self-harm lately. I was listening, I, I got turned on to this article listening to Bannon's podcast last week. Uh, and he just, oh or he just refers to this guy as the general, um, which kind of gave me these Air Force One flashbacks to like release General Raddock uh, you know, in the po in the podcast. I, I don't know. I couldn't get that image out of my head. But this General Boldick um, is uh, just uh, you know very Flynn esque, right? In that he had he he had, had risen to the ranks, um, you know, retired from the military, started to get involved in politics, started to get involved in also you know some nonprofit stuff. I had someone. Um, a couple of people send me after the article was up that he did a lot of real, I think, good advocacy on behalf of people from the military who had PTSD, though, you know, that also like kind of begs this kind of sort of question about people who have experienced, you know, that that sort of thing. I think is even people in the military get concerned about, you know, how, you know, what in, in these high stress environments, you know, you, you put somebody who had that experience and now they're in a high stress, you know, political environment. And, you know, that, that can have like this kind of crazy making effect on people. J Jason Kander wrote a great book about this, uh, recently. Um, so anyway, Boldick has, you know, starts to just kind of go get red pilled. And I, I'm sure he's always conservative, but kind of go deep into conspiracy world. Right. And he is deep in the microchip, Bill Gates conspiracy, you know, said so the only chip he's putting in his body is a Dorito, um, a very, uh, which I'm sure doesn't have any mystery ingredients that he has to worry about. Um, but, uh, you know, went very down the rabbit hole about how Bill Gates and Soros are behind Black Lives Matter, how they're a terrorist organization. 
country started obviously being defensive of Confederate monuments, a very popular position up in New Hampshire, of course. which was not part of the Confederacy, If uh, for those of you who are no. still kind of working on your geography. And then the election lies. And, and to Ackerman's point, he signed, you might remember the letter, yeah, 124 retired generals and admirals released a letter based, saying that Joe Biden stole the election. Uh, Voldick was one of those people. I mean, that is alarming to have that many people with that high of rank in the military just just advancing this complete lie. So Bolduc is a lunatic. Uh, and and the, in the political angle for the article is that basically Republicans, this is just a less known, you know, Herschel Walker situation where, where in theory, in a good year for Republicans, New Hampshire is a winnable state. Had they put up like a mainstream Republican, like their popular governor, Chris Sununu, instead they're putting up this Confederate uh, sympathizing uh, conspiracy theorist uh, who has very low chance of winning in a you know state that Biden won, um, and so another just horrible candidate quality issue. But I, I do think I, I I like where you went with this. I, I do think the, the the militarization of our politics is alarming, and and I think it's just worth noting because this very is dangerous. on friendly turf for us. I think if you look back in retrospect, the intelligence community types weighing in on the Hunter Biden laptop was a massive mistake, right? And all of that, I, I just, so it, it, I don't think it's just the kind of red-pilled conspiracists, so they're the more acute concern right now. You know, just having more front and center role of the ex-military is a little uncomfortable. No, I completely agree with you. Uh, so let, let's stick with the, uh, the the Senate race and the candidate quality issue yeah. for a moment, because the New Hampshire story is really interesting because that was one state that Republicans had a reasonable, plausible uh, chance of flipping, you know, in a, yeah. in a Republican year, like Georgia, like, uh, you know, like Arizona, like Pennsylvania, et cetera. And it, they went with uh, with Trumpian candidates. OK, so speaking of one of the races that, again, you and I are both probably still struggling to figure out what are the new rules in politics? Because, I mean, things that were would have been disqualifying in any other election cycle might not be who knows anymore. Dr. Oz has been underperforming. Um, he has turned out to be a terrible candidate uh, in, in, in Pennsylvania. He's trailing in the polls. And he's apparently made a kind of an interesting, uh, quotes around interesting, please, a tactical decision that he's going to go after Fetterman's health. And apparently this has now become a new big thing. Of course, John Fetterman had a stroke. He's back on the, the campaign trail. He clearly has some issues you know, he will pause, yeah. he will miss some words here and there. He's a little bit awkward, but he's been doing great on social media, but there's clearly an issue there. And one of the questions it was, would Dr. Oz go there? Would he, would he go after John Fetterman's health? He actually put out a statement saying, you know, if John Fetterman had ever eaten a salad, he wouldn't have had, he would never have had a stroke. And people are going, that's really sick, man. You know, and yet the Dr. Oz and his circle are going, no, let's double down on all of that. So, is this going to backfire or is this the I am a doctor and I am I'm sorry to tell you this John Fetterman is just not up for this job. How's that going to play? Yeah, that was a spokesman that put out that thing, which I just I just want to mention, because as we talk about all of the you know ways that the culture has been debased in our political culture, like that was not the type of thing that, you know, in my day, <laughs> spokespeople were putting out. Uh, that was, it's one thing to do that on a debate stage, candidate to candidate, but just going to have a spokesperson freelancing um, attacking somebody's stroke um, and in such personal terms it's just a different kind of world but um, the uh, I don't I think it's a sign of a desperate campaign uh, there's an interesting poll came out. Republicans, way, yeah. Republicans were pushing this poll 
and it had it had Oz only down four, you know, because he'd been down more in a lot of the other polls. So a lot of my former colleagues were pushing this on social media. But if you look at the poll deeper, it was interesting. It had the same poll had Trump up five, I think, or six in Pennsylvania. So, uh, which seems very hard to imagine that he's up five or six against Biden, but who knows? He lost, uh, as we all know. Um, uh, so, Trump, Oz trailing Trump by 10, you know, no matter what you think about the ballot number, it shows that there really are some Trump Fetterman voters out there, right? And so, it's like, how is Oz going to be able to get back? And, and you assume that's probably Obama Trump Fetterman, right? Like, how do you get back into yeah. that, like, kind of blue collar? guy, you know, that that is maybe not as as economically conservative, probably pro-choice or, you know, um, if we're stereotyping a a broad brush. And and how do you get at them? You know, maybe this sort of Trumpian domination trolling is the path because like Oz is just such an effete, you know, Hollywood guy, right? Like he's never going to be able to out Fetterman Fetterman in in there. So is there a different way that he can dominate him? Is there a different way that he can kind of weaken him and I think this is a sign that they don't really know how to do that, except for, you know, I think that they'll go very hard on the criminal justice issue with ads and and probably trying to troll him on his health. So I expect we'll see more of this. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a way of doing it deftly and, you know, perhaps yeah. cleverly. I, I don't sense that they are going to go that way. No. Okay, so I'm going to take a deep breath here because I'm I'm, <sighs> I'm, I'm almost exhausted talking about it now. I, know. Um, I was wondering yeah. if you were going to skip it. We got this far in the podcast. No, I was like, maybe no, Charlie no, can't no. do it. Because I, I I have to tell you that my sense is that the uh, progressive Twitterverse does not understand, does not have a feel the way the uh, student loan forgiveness is playing out here <laughs> among swing voters. And it strikes me as a significant own goal, bad politics, bad policy. You know how I feel about this. Um, and we can argue all that. It, it it the Republicans it are reacting like they've just been given a big big hunk of catnip. And when I say it's an own goal, Biden was on a roll. They had just passed this Inflation Reduction Act. Um, there were a lot of things that were, you know, giving them a little bit of momentum. This gives the re- Republicans exactly what they wanted. Yeah. And so, where do you come down on this? I I just think it's unfortunate on so many levels which we can get into. But what do you think? I just want to table for a second the policy. I do, I do want to get yeah. to that because I have a little bit more mixed views than I think you and James yeah. did. I listened to yesterday's podcast. Uh, not not totally mm-hmm. for, but more mixed. So I want to get to the policy at the end. Uh, the politics. Th- there are two things here that I just, I would implore people who are very big cheerleaders of this to understand as far as the political real- re- reality. Number one is just, we learned, we we went through this. Like we've been talking about how great Biden was doing at dividing the opposition and uniting his own side. This is just a fundamental political strategic move, right? You you wedge the other side, you unite your own side. That is the best way to, you know, to expand your political base uh, and, and to do well in elections. That's just the simplest way to understand politics. Biden wasn't doing that in in 2021, right? BBB was dividing his own side, the human infrastructure, right? And he, he wasn't taking these easy wins on infrastructure and other things. That had changed this year. And we'd been complimenting him, uh, you know, the, the gay marriage and contraception votes, um, abortion, we've been talking about ad nauseum, uh, the, the infrastructure bill, the smaller BBB bill united his side. Um, here we are back again, 
going for an issue that divides his own side. And you have all the, all these Democratic politicians that are coming, having to speak out against it. People who I, in my life, who are Biden voters, people that are part of the Biden coalition, don't like this. Maybe they shouldn't feel resentful. We can talk about the merits about this in a second, but they do. So if you're if you are slightly demoralizing certain people on your own side and exciting others, so you're dividing your own side, and everyone on the other side is excited, you're giving them something to talk about besides Mar-a-Lago, besides uh, abortion. Like that's just a sign that it's not a political winner, right? Like it, maybe it will maybe it will motivate um, a certain class of person to come out to vote in the midterms and it'll give a little boost in certain places. But I just, at a fundamental basic analysis of politics, uh, I just don't see how you can look at this and say, okay, well, that's a clear win because it's not. So that's my political analysis. No, no, well, I I, th- I think you're absolutely right. And you're seeing this play out here. You know, Axios is reporting, you know, the, the you know, Republicans have already launched an ad blitz, uh, ad blitz mocking the Biden student loan plan. I mean, they love this. Uh, this is from Axios. Uh, Republicans are confident the president's plan will be politically problematic and are backing up their spin with paid advertising. They're, they're going to run ads on college football games, major league baseball games. And it features a waitress, a mechanic, and a landscaper talking about working extra shifts to help theater majors and business majors get out of debt. Landscaper in the spot says, Biden's right. You should take my tax dollars to pay off your debts. My family will figure out how to get by with less. What's more important if we spare college graduates many extra stress? Mechanic follows up. Want to be a struggling artist? College is on me. Okay. I understand all of the arguments and a lot of whataboutism. Well, didn't we forgive this and with that? Look, I, I'm against all of those, the, all of that mooching. I, all of it. I do. I do think it's funny, by the way. Sometimes people do forget that we used to be conservatives, and I have a, a lot of people yeah. in my feed that are like, "Well, what about? Wasn't TARP unfair? Wasn't yeah. this yeah. giveaway yes. unfair? Wasn't that giveaway well, unfair?" And I was like, "Don't you remember that? That's what we all were saying." Yeah. Back then. We were all anyway. against that sort Sorry. of thing. Okay, so the, you know, this thing is very, very costly. I mean, this is going to cost about a half trillion dollars, so it, it is a big deal. But also, and to your point about the politics. As you know, there are really complicated, hard to explain issues, and then there are easy to explain issues. Things like BBB and even the Inflation Reduction Act are really complicated and difficult to explain. This is very easy, which makes it more deadly for people who say, I don't see how this moves the needle. It definitely moves the the needle on so many different things without even getting into the the policy about all of this. So I agree with your analysis. And again, you know, having just passed the Inflation Reduction Act, this gives, whether it's true or not, gives Republicans a tremendous talking point about inflationary spending. And it does feel like a pander to their own constituency, to Biden voters. It walks like it looks like a pander. It walks like a yeah. pander. Maybe maybe, in fact, it is a political pander. And it's it's got all the worst vibes. I'm sorry. I want to add one other negative thing before I get to the, the elements of it that I, I, I think that maybe the Democrats can try to work with now that it's happened. Uh, but I, I think this is important, and I want people that are supporters of this of good faith to listen to this, because this matters. The legal part of this, okay, I, I didn't go to Larry Tribe's class. I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but like, just it's preposterous on its face that the President of the United States can buy fiat, just pick a number out of the air, and determine this is the amount of number that we are going to forgive loans because we're in 
an emergency. Like we're not an emergency. Like there's no reasonable definition of emergency that defines the situation that we're in right now. Maybe we're in a student loan crisis. I want to get to that in a second. But but this is not an acute emergency. This pandemic is the excuse, I guess, that they're using. They can't even really defend it. Nancy Pelosi didn't say said it wasn't legal. Jen Psaki said it wasn't legal. Like it isn't legal. And so if we're going to be part of a Joe Biden said I can't do this. Joe Biden himself said, I don't have the power to do that without congressional action. He said that. Yeah. So if we're going to be pro-democracy, pro-constitutional democracy Mm. coalition, okay, we can't just say, oh, well, we can do a little soft autocratic action from the executive as long as he's nice. And as long as the as long as the thing that he's doing is helpful, even if you think it's helpful and you think it's good and you disagree with some of our political analysis, you know. Just because they did it doesn't mean we can do it, right? Like th- there has to be some limits that responsible people put on, uh, you know, what an executive branch is allowed to do, and and, and I really don't want the you know the next Republican president to to build a wall or fund some child separation internment camps like and and be able to say well we're in an emergency and i can just do this and it's the same justification okay. that joe biden used and and obviously they might do it anyway blah 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 yeah. but but this but is, i'm sorry it's just like you have to at least even if you like this you have to at least admit that this is not the way to do it okay so I agree with you. However, I think we've already crossed that line. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're, we're, we're in this spiral where people actually like, if, if I want it, if, uh, if it's something I favor, then, then yes, absolutely. Presidential fiat, um, you know, using some sort of, um, you know, s- stretching the emergency powers as far as they possibly can to get what I want. So you have a president who now, and again, for people who, who think that we're being unfair here, I think Joe Biden himself was very, very skeptical. Nancy Pelosi said very clearly, we need congressional action. And when we talk about this in terms of democracy, what you just said is not irrelevant. This is really, really important because if we get to a point where any president of either party can say, because I declare this emergency, I am going to unilaterally declare this policy, spend trillions of dollars or ban this or legalize this, then we have become, you know, some form of maybe it's a soft autocracy, maybe it's a harder autocracy, but it is not a constitutional republic in which Congress has the power of the purse strings and Congress makes these, you know, we, we actually change the laws. So be careful what you wish for. But I think we've crossed this. I just think that, you know, you saw this with Obama. You saw this with Trump. You're seeing it with Biden. The next time around, you know, there will be the, you know, use this as a precedent and the cycle will continue. And then everybody will switch teams like, no, we want the president to rule, you know, by by fiat. No, we that's terrible. The president rules by fiat. And the only distinction is if the other guy's in the White House, you take one position when your guy's in the White House. You, you know, I mean, this is where we're at now. And I'm and I'm sorry. Now, yeah. in terms of the crisis, they're using the pandemic or they're using war powers or just. Yeah, they're using the pandemic. I will. Yeah. And the war, they're going back to the a post 9-11. I know. Justification for I forget what the you know, grace was given for a certain category of people after 9-11. I'd have to go back and look. But but that's, it was, it's a post-9-11 federal guidance that, that now they are updating and saying, well, you know, because of the pandemic, 
we can do this. Yeah. And it's just like, come on. I, I don't, I, maybe it's one day. I don't, you know, again, it's like, it's important. stop collecting interest. I, I think that there may be other ways to do this. It is important. The other thing is they don't have the votes. One of the, this is the other frustrating thing. One of the reasons they're not going through Congress, it doesn't have to do with the filibuster. They don't have the Democratic votes to do this. Right. And so, again, I, I just think that's a sign that, that, that they didn't have the goods here. And, you know, maybe they could have come up with something else that, that did have it. I, I do want to just say this about the policy that is, because I think we've all been very, you know, bulwark with large has been pretty harsh on this uh, for good reason. But I, I think that something that does get lost and the Democrats are going to have to try to message, which is much more challenging and complicated to message than what Republicans have, to your bumper sticker point, is that like, there, there are a lot, you know, the student loan system is a total fucking scam. And it is completely different than it was 40 years ago, right? And the, when a lot of the boomers who are complaining about this, you know, we're going through college, like the price is through the roof. The federal government has a lot of responsibility for this, but so do the, you know, the, you know, basically loan sharks, you know, level rates that, that, that they're making people pay for some of these student loans. And, and not, this is not, you know, most of the people getting helped by this are, you know, actually people that didn't have a parent, you know, this is not Lawrence Tribe's class that's being helped by this, right? Yeah. Like, it's mostly people that didn't have a parachute. And I just think about in my life, right? Like, I can think of three people in my life that, like, didn't know what they wanted to do in college, went to college because they were told that they should, you know, we're, we're, we got parents and guidance counselors pushing people into college and, and you know, didn't do particularly well, decided to go to some alternative kind of school, culinary school or whatever. Two of these three you know, had uh, had a safety net in in the in the in their parents, right? That were able to kind of fund this, you know, sort of dithering uh, through their early twenties and didn't come out with huge debt. One person I was just hearing from yesterday uh, had kind of a similar path, didn't have that safety net, right? Ended up having to drop out of college, ended up working in restaurants, and you know, this basically clears out their debt. Like that person is not a college grad that went and learned gender studies like they did right. what all of the like republicans say that we want they like tried to learn a trade went to culinary school like we're set we're sitting on two years of debt from you know the state school they went to and then culinary school the loan are ridiculous and you know now you're working in a restaurant and yeah. and you know that takes right and i i'm sympathetic to this right i just i, I, re- I, I really too. i really okay am. but but i but i think this is this is where you have the real policy flaw I have written multiple whole books about the higher education cartel, about the incredibly bloated cost of of college education, the bloated bureaucracies, the bloated spending, the escalation of tuition costs way beyond the rate of inflation. That is a genuine crisis of cost and affordability. This does not address that. This includes no reform of higher education. This does nothing for future students who will borrow money except to create moral hazard. What this does is it's a one-time giveaway that actually will make things worse because it's a signal, hey, there's this free money. Colleges have responded to every signal of free money by doing what? By making it more expensive. And especially now that you're forgiving debt, it might actually induce some students to go deeper into debt in the future. So this, it's, it's regressive, it's ineffective, it might be counterproductive about this, but there is a genuine crisis here about the cost and accessibility of higher education that they that if you're throwing around a half trillion dollars, 
you could have done some. You could have, you know, created, you know, a, a pathway for more people to community colleges or to these trade schools or to the culinary schools or a safety net for people who are genuinely in need. And in terms of the stories about people who are deeply in debt, we could have a future president using the exact same logic and powers to unilaterally say, okay, you know, student debt was bad, but why not do mortgage debt, $11 trillion? How about auto loan debt, $1.5 trillion? You want to talk about a ripoff? How about credit card debt? You know, you want to talk, you talk about loan sharks? You know what, there's a loan shark? You have a credit card? Do you know how much interest you're paying on that? I mean, how in, in 2022 do lenders in the current environment, when, when interest rates were like what, you know, you know, point, you know, five, they were charging you, Tim Miller and me, they were charging us 24%. And I didn't hear Elizabeth Warren out there saying, you know what, people are really struggling under their credit card debt. They're struggling under medical debt. We ought to wipe out those. Yeah, a Democratic congressman who I like uh, a lot, actually, Jake Auchincloss uh, out of Massachusetts said this basically yesterday. I would have rather we did medical debt. Well, exactly. I've been saying this for months. In terms of real need, this feels like, and when I say pander before, and people are going to blow back on, you know, basically, look, w- why did this happen? Because they were convinced that this would motivate the progressive base. This would motivate young voters. Well, that's a payoff to voters. That's not a public policy that will solve the problem of higher education and who should go to college. How do we connect people with their education? This is just doing it. So I find this to be very, very frustrating. And it's one of the reasons why so many other Democrats, like as you pointed out, including Tim Ryan, the congressman from Ohio, who is running for U.S. Senate against J.D. Vance, who understands exactly how this is going to play in Ohio and said, look, you know, a college education should be about opening opportunities, but waiving debt for those already on a trajectory to financial security sends the wrong message to millions of Ohioans without a degree working just as hard to make ends meet. Tim Ryan knows this is a political loser, but he also knows that it's a policy shit show as well. Yeah, and I right, yeah, right no, no, you're right, and I know, yeah. and I, this is gonna be my last thing about this because yeah. I I hate to just just beat it, but it's true. And there could have been other creative ways, like right for for example, what if it was just to say, you know, we're not we're gonna stop actually collecting interest on mm-hmm. you know on these sort of debts over those. So you couldn't. So then Republicans and others couldn't go out and say, oh, actually, you're forgiving these debts. Like no, actually, these people still, everyone's still gonna have to pay back the principal on their debt. But these interest rates were out of control, and this was predatory, and the government shouldn't be complicit in this and we should be undercutting actually the cartel right I and mean, that's just i you know maybe there are reasons that couldn't work i'm just saying there are other ideas the five percent element of this i actually really like which is like you you only have to pay back a certain percent of your salary if you're up yes. to 225 I mean, that was great right. I and mean, they should do it through congress but that's a great policy i think i, agree. I, I really I agree with you I, yeah i really like that policy and then the last thing okay and then i'm going to promise uh step ranting is going up to 250 a family i pulled oh. this up on google i pulled this up on google that's the 98th percentile. You're, you know, the Democrats, like, you know, in the old days, Elizabeth Warren used to rant about people in the 1% that are taking, you know, that are getting a fair deal. This is people in the 2% that, that are getting this right. Like, why did it go up so high? Who is for, I just, who is for that? Um, 
going up to 75k i get you know i'm sure then there will be some people that get a raw deal who are you know who are in huge debt who who ha- who make 125k I, you know there are challenges to all these things but again as a talking point going all the way up to a quarter million anyway so so i, I just think that there are way i'm i, I just want my final message here is i want to say like i'm i'm sympathetic to this it is a scam we should be doing something to help people get out from under it uh, this was designed in a way that has a lot of flaws politically and legally uh, and just uh, and on the policy. Okay. Can I make a point of personal privilege? Please do. As you know, but maybe the listeners don't know, I'm going to be taking a little bit of time off um, next week because I, I have I have the alignment of the planets right now. I mean... I got, next week is really packed. I'll be I'll be back after Labor Day, but I, but I'm not. I mean, I'm not just going to sit on the beach. So why not? Well, because I can. Well, I will do a little bit of that. I will. I will because for the first time in three years, my French grandkids came over from France, and so they are here, and we haven't seen them in three years. So uh, we have the French family here, here in in Wisconsin. Next week, we will all fly to Washington D.C where in a period of four days, a number of things will happen. The French grandkids will meet their cousins for the very first time. Grandkids for the very, very first time. They've been doing, you know, FaceTime stuff, but they've never actually met their cousins. They weren't born the last time they were here, you know, but, you know, two and one. Then we arrive on Wednesday, Thursday morning, by Thursday morning, another granddaughter will be born while we are there. Okay, and that could happen today, but the latest that will happen will be Thursday. So everyone will be there. They will they will be able to potentially meet the new baby while we're here, and then in over the weekend, my younger son gets married. Oh my god! Yeah, and so the extended family will be together for the very first time within days of meeting and the babies. So we have the baby, the reunion, all of this is going to be happening in a very compact next few days. So I thought this was a good time to maybe take off. So for people who so think- cute, Charlie. I'm getting chills for you. Can we, can you, you know, put some little videos of the grandkid uh, meetup yeah, in the Slack or something? Uh, well, exactly. So for people who might think that I'm malingering, doing this, then I'm just going to be off next week. Not going to do the podcast, but people will be filling in. We'll have some of the, you know, people from the kids table you know, coming in and, you know, filling I'm in. A, on the podcast. I'm in a couple of days and I have, good. I have a couple of good guests lined up. I think people are going to really enjoy it. I am very much looking forward to that. So I will see you on the other side of Labor Day, Mr. Miller. Charlie, really enjoy it. Enjoy the time with those grandkitties and uh, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. And I still have a podcast. There's going to be other folks. But I will talk to you after Labor Day. Have a great holiday.